Welcome to our podcast, Doing It Right. This podcast reveals authentic stories from successful leaders doing it right. It's about their journey to become a leader, their choices, motivations, and lessons. In essence, how they built successful personal brands. Your host is Valerie Sokolowski, author of eight leadership books and nationally known as an authority on executive presence and personal branding. Let's get started. Here's Valerie. Hello and welcome back. And before we ever get started, take that finger, put it on that red button and hit subscribe and share so you don't miss any of our fabulous guests, just like the one we have today. Sam Horn is the founder and CEO of what's called the Intrigue Agency. Isn't that an intriguing name? And here's another one. She's also CEO and founder of Tang Fu Institute. We'll learn more about that. She's known as the communications expert. She's been on many of the TED Talks. And listen to this. She's so well-known, and she does such a fabulous job. TEDx Fellows actually brought Sam in to advise them on how to clearly communicate their projects. NASA brought Sam in to media train their science scientists. And LinkedIn brought Sam in to design and deliver the video training called Preparing for Successful Communication. When Sam isn't busy doing her magic, Here's what she's doing, or here's what she did. She took a trek in 2016 to kind of refresh and reframe and reflect. And I think many people today have been taking time to do just that. What she did was she went around talking to people, asking them a very simple question. She asked, are you happy? And if so, why? If you're not, why? Actually, that trek turned into four years. Doesn't that sound special? Four years just to take off and reflect? Well, those adventures and interviews and the resulting epiphanies turned into a book called Someday is Not a Day in a Week. Welcome, Sam Horn. Thanks so much, Valerie. I've really been looking forward to sharing some stories and insights with your listeners. Well, I <clears throat> want to tell my listeners that I actually, you remember this, Sam, I met you in the late 90s when I attended the Maui Writers Conference. I was invited, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> I was invited by a friend who knew I wanted to write a book. And she said, oh, you've just got to go to this Maui Writers Conference. So I won't say anything more about it except this. I will never forget that experience, Sam, and I will never forget you because you were the executive director for how many years? 17 years. Tell us about that. How did you, how did you start such a fabulous event? You know, it was, um, I had done some training on Oahu and I'd flown back to my home on Maui and I got a phone call from a friend. And she said, Sam, we're having a Writers Guild meeting tonight. We'd like you to come. Well, I was exhausted. I said, thanks and no thanks. And she persisted. Nevertheless, she persisted. <laughs> and this was uh, rare for her. So I decided to go after all. And I met a gentleman named John Tullius. And we really hit it off. So we went out to dinner. And John talked about his vision for this writers conference. What can is to the film industry. 
he wanted a writer's conference for the publishing industry. And I said, well, that's kind of interesting because that's what I do is I put on conferences. Valerie, would you believe six weeks later, we put on the very first, six weeks, <laughs> we put on the very first Maui Writers Conference, 150 people showed up from around the world, and we gave them an opportunity to jump the chain of command. I mean, you could pitch your screenplay to Ron Howard. You could learn about poetry from Poet Laureate W.S. Merwin. You could pitch your novel to Robert Loomis, the senior VP of Random House. It was unprecedented, and those were 17 great years. And so for you in those 17 great years, what was the biggest learning for you personally? <laughs> I, I hope, okay, I hope people are taking notes. And here's why, Valerie, is that, you know, we had fantastic keynoters, Mitch Album, Tuesdays with Maury and, and Dave Barry and Carrie Fisher, Cinnamon Bunniers and Star Wars. And they did not agree on anything. One would say, you have to write first thing in the morning. Another would say, I don't get going until the afternoon. Someone would say, you have to work with an outline. The other would say, I never work with an outline. You know, the only thing they agreed on? Ink it when you think it. And that was my biggest lesson as well, is that our life is our lab. And I hope that everywhere we go, we keep our antenna up. And when something gets our eyebrows up, we write it down. Because if it gets our eyebrows up, it will get other people's eyebrows up. And that's one of the keys to being intriguing. You know, you are so good in your books, which I've read these two and will order the rest of them. You're so good at those little quips. Ink it when you think it. Now, Sam, why didn't you tell me that eight <laughs> books ago? <laughs> because I have not been doing that. And that's a great tip. It, it, is, it is the key to being organic and original and making our content something that is compelling. And I'll give you another quick way to come up with quick tips because maybe your listeners are going, well, I would like to do that too. Well, there is an art and a skill to it. And here's the story. And then here's the skill is that Gary Marshall, uh, if you saw the movie Pretty Woman, you saw Gary Marshall, the director. And he said something so profound at Maui Writers Conference. I remember it as if he said it this morning. He said, Hollywood directors can predict when their movies will make money based on one thing. Guess what it is? I don't know. <laughs> Do people walk out of the theater repeating something they heard word for word? Because if they're saying, make my day, show me the money, I'll be back. When someone says, seen any good movies recently, they're talking about your movie. They're brand ambassadors. They're taking it viral. So when I work with clients on their books or on their TEDx talks or on their keynotes, here's the question. When people put down the book, can they repeat anything they read word for word when they walk out of your keynote? And now there is a way to do this. Shall we share it right here real quick? Absolutely. And before you do that, I am going to say every single person who's watching or listening, if you're not driving, get a pen and paper. You are not going to want to miss any of this interview. Okay, go ahead, Sam. <laughs> okay, so ink it when you think it. Please write down A-I-R. And here's how to come up with an airtight sound bite. A is for alliteration. Now just listen, it's like bed, toilet, and shower. Duncan croissants, best purchase. Kind of clunky, right? Now make those words alliterative. Alliteration 
is when words start with the same sound, it makes us instantly eloquent and it makes our language lyrical. Best Buy, Dunkin' Donuts, Rolls Royce. And now quick little 60 second story about this, because this is not this is not word play or it's not petty. It's actually word cash and it's pivotal. For example, um, do you drink coffee, Valerie? Every morning, at least five cups. Well, there you go. Boom. <laughs> Have you ever put those cardboard insulating sleeves around a cup of coffee so it doesn't burn your fingers? Yes. Yeah. Well, it's hard to build the business around an unpronounceable name. So Jay Sorensen realized that was a business opportunity. So he didn't call them that commodity generic name of cardboard insulating sleeves. You know what he called them? What? Java jackets. Boom. He cornered the market. In fact, he says people who meant to call his competitors call him because they can't remember the competitor's name. They remember Java Jacket. That's the importance of alliteration. Shall we go on to the next one, the I? Absolutely. I is iambic meter. When you put it in a beat, you make it easy to repeat. When you put it in a beat, you make it easy to repeat. I can't believe I ate the whole thing. Takes a licking and keeps on ticking. When you see something, say something. Do you hear that when there's a rhythm to the words, it makes it more repeatable? Perfect. Shall we go on to R? Absolutely. Rhyme is sublime. For example, the U.S. government was very concerned about injuries and car accidents, so they launched a multi-million dollar ad campaign. And guess what it was? Buckle up for safety. Oh, kind of clunky, right? In one ear, in one eye, out the other. Well, as Duke Ellington said, it don't mean a thing if it ain't got that swing. So they went back to the drawing board. This time they came out with click it or ticket. And you know, Valerie, that slogan saved lives it actually motivated people to put on their safety belt. It reduced injuries and fatalities and, and accidents. So this whole airtight soundbite, I have dozens of examples of it's not petty. It's not just semantics. It is the difference between your message getting remembered and acted on. That is just so fabulous. And the way you presented it is so magical. Now, take that to a leader who is having a meeting, and it's really an important meeting. Can you align maybe what you're saying to how a leader talks to his team? You bet. In fact, um, let me give you an example uh, of the power of this, and then we'll talk about a meeting and how at the end, when there's a rally cry to send people out, how can we say something that is top of mind for them? We could even post it so it's in sight, in mind for them instead of out of sight, out of mind. My sons went to Virginia Tech and they were there when a young man with uh, automatic weapons killed a number of the faculty and the college students. And it was a horrific experience. And the next day, 60,000 parents and students and faculty gathered in Hokie Stadium and, and speaker after speaker came out and talked about the nightmare and the tragedy. And Tom and Andrew said the, the mood in that stadium was just so gloomy. 
And Nikki Giovanni understood the power of words. And she looked around and then she said, we are Virginia Tech. We will prevail. We are Virginia Tech. We will prevail. And Andrew and Tom said 60,000 people stood up and took up that rally cry. They actually put it on armbands. The businesses in Blacksburg put those, those banners up. And it was such an example of how, what do we want people to start, to stop, or to do differently? How can we craft it in one actionable, memorable sentence that people actually repeat and remember and act on. So let's talk about meetings. Everyone listening to this right now, what is a meeting that you've got coming up? All right, what do you want people to start, stop, or do differently as a result of that meeting? What do you want them to remember and to act on and to believe and to model? Can I give you a quick example of that? Please is that right now we're in very contentious times, is that uh, with COVID, a lot of people have lost their job or they've had to shut their doors. With uh, the political unrest and with racial injustice, there's a lot of anger and and people are saying some, are, are being mean to each other and saying whatever is on their mind without thinking about the consequences. And And I would suggest that if you're in a meeting and you are seeing some of this conflict going on in your work, you may want to say, remember, we have more in common than we do in conflict. Or you may want to quote RBG, Ruth, ba Ruth Bader Ginsburg, you know, is that she was often asked, how can you get along with Justice Scalia? I mean, you have radically different political views. You go to opera together. How do you do that? And Valerie, do you know what she said? What? We are different. We are one. We are different. We are one. So maybe at the meeting, if it's deteriorating into finger pointing or blaming or fault finding, maybe you can say, hey, we're here to find solutions, not to find fault. Remember, we have more in common than we do in conflict. Remember, we are different. We are one. That's so needed. Those words are so eloquent. They're so simple. Any of us can say that. So let's try it. That takes me to your first book, Kung Fu. Mm -hmm. I had it back then. You sent me another one, so I'll give one of them to someone that will also appreciate it. How in the world did you come up with such a unique title? Well, thank you. It's a, this was back in Hawaii, and Dr. Ray Oshiro of the University of Hawaii asked me to do a course on conflict resolution. And I will always be grateful because we had about, oh, 60 people in the room from healthcare and from finance and from banking and utilities and, and food and beverage hospitality. And at our first break, there was a gentleman, and he didn't even get up to get a cup of coffee or to get some fresh air. He just sat there gazing off into space. Now, I was curious, and I went over. I said, what are you thinking? And he said, Sam, I'm a real estate broker. He said, I deal with some very demanding and arrogant people. They seem to think they can treat me any way they want to. I'm tired of it. He said, I thought you were going to teach us some zingers to 
fire back at people and put them in their place. He said, that's not what this is about, is it? And I agreed, no, it's not. It's not about putting people in their place. It's about putting ourselves in their place so we can respond with compassion instead of contempt. And he was the one who said, I'm a student of martial arts. He said, I've studied karate, taekwondo, judo. He said, what you're talking about is kind of like a verbal form of kung fu, isn't it? Eureka, the perfect name, Tung Fu. That's what it is. It's martial arts for the mind and mouth. <laughs> what a great story. Sometimes we get the greatest uh, ahas from other people, but wow, has it taken, the, taken your business to such a level. So what exactly do you do at Tung Fu Training Institute? We help people learn the art and craft of giving and getting respect. Isn't it ironic is that we're not taught this in school. We're taught math and science and history. We're not taught how to get along. <laughs> so what this is about is actually how we can communicate in a way that turns conflict into cooperation. Oh, that is good. And I have to tell you, it plays right into, I didn't know you were going to explain it so perfectly as a transition, Sam, because I wanted to tell the uh, listeners about a chapter in which, in Tung Fu, you gave a list of words to lose and words to use. Can you just give us a couple of them based on what we're talking about? I'd love that. Thank you for bringing that up because people, I have the privilege of working with a lot of people on being one of a kind instead of one of many. And the one of the quickest ways to do that, put a vertical line down the center of your paper right now. And on the top of the left, put words to lose. On the top of the right, put words to use. Or put conflict, cooperation. Put resentment, put rapport. Put the past, put the future. Put what sabotages our relationships to what supports our relationships, to what compromises our effectiveness, to what contributes to our effectiveness. Because if you are a thought leader, or if you want to write or speak, or even if you want people to listen to you and remember you and act on what you say, the quickest way to make a complicated idea crystal clear is to juxtapose it. Not this, this shift from this to this. So now let's come back to the words to lose and words to use. For example, let's put this word, three little word over on the left that does more damage in the English language than any other word, but. Well, I hear what you're saying, but. Well, you did a good job on that, but. I know the Zoom meeting was supposed to start at nine, but. Do you hear how the word, but actually creates a conflict? Over on the right, put the word and. I hear what you're saying, and we tried that before, and it didn't work out, and do you have any suggestions on how we could handle that more effectively? You're right. The meeting was supposed to start at nine, and thank you for your patience, and let's get, let's, let's set this in motion. The word and advances conversations. The word but anchors them in arguments. And the rest of the book, and one of the reasons, Valerie, it's still selling 30 years after I wrote it. It's published in 17 different languages in China and in Turkey and in Poland and in Japan is because every chapter has what not to say and what to say 
and we can use it at work and at home and online and in public. I just think that's phenomenal. My goodness, as a fellow author, wouldn't it be great? I'll have, I can't live that long, 30 years. That says so much. Sam, I want to go to you just as a person. This other book that I think is your last one, is that right? It's my late, uh, it's not my last one, it's my latest one. <laughs> That's right. Thank you for that. <laughs> and it's very special. Someday is not a day in the week. I'd love for you to tell us about what I read as the reason you wrote it and about how special your father was to you. You know, thank you so much. It's that um, my father was a really honorable man. He was in charge of agriculture education for the state of California. He was in charge of all the FFA, Future Farmers of America. And he, he traveled four or five days a week to go to exhibits, to go to county fairs, to go to farms and ranches. And his goal was to really make a difference. And he absolutely did do that. And his dream was to visit all the national parks. And his he was going to do that when he retired. So he worked six to seven days most of his life. And once again, he really did leave a legacy of making a difference for other people. And two weeks after he retired, he went off on his dream trip to visit those national parks. And he had a stroke in a hotel bathroom. And he never had a chance to complete his dream. And you know, Valerie, it's Paulo Coelho said, one day we're going to wake up and there won't be any time left to do the things we've always wanted to do. And I looked at my life and I was following my dad's example. And I was working six or seven days a week. And I love what I do. I love helping people with their books and with their TED Talks and with their keynotes. And I love speaking and I love this work. And yet there were a lot of things that I wanted to do that I was putting on hold until someday. So I decided to launch this year by the water. I travel the bodies of water around the world. I interview people, as you said, about happiness. What makes you happy? You know, if, if you are happy, why? And if you're not, why not? And the goal of that book is to help us really reflect on our life. So that unexamined life is not worth living. What are we postponing? What are we putting off and assuming that we'll do it someday? How can we get clear on what's really important and how can we bring it into our life now instead of waiting for those perfect circumstances that may never come? It's a beautiful book. I just will say, get it and read it because again, as all your books, there are just great, great stories. You love quotes, Sam. <laughs> your books are full of quotes. What's your favorite quote? Oh, boy. <laughs> uh, it depends on when you ask me in the context of the situation. Can I share three favorite quotes? <laughs> okay. One is uh, I open almost every presentation with one from Arthur Rubenstein. He said, I have found if you love life, life will love you back. And, you know, I love to speak and I love to share stories and insights that hopefully motivate people. And then I segue into and to help you love this program back. I'm not going to waste your time on ivory tower theories that have no relevance in your world. So that's one of them. Another one is from Catherine Graham. 
a reporter one time asked me how I felt about doing the work I do. And I said, I agree with Catherine Graham. She was, of course, in charge of the Washington Post. And she said, to do what you love and feel that it matters, how could anything be more fun? Well, the only thing that's more fun is to do what we love, feel that it matters, and get to do it with people we enjoy and respect. And that's what I get to do every day. And then the, if of all the quotes I know, if I were going to pick a third quote, it is in the Someday book, and it is from Rene Ricard, and he said, tomorrow is another day, but so is yesterday. <laughs> Those are three beautiful quotes. Glad to know they're three of your favorites, and I will tell you, I, I can't even begin to tell you the ones that I love from, from your books as well. Sam, tell us about um, a time when you're so confident mm. and... Was there ever a time when you sort of were not confident, your own self-confidence? Yeah, I, there's, there's two parts. First is, why am I confident? Because a reporter once asked me, where did you get your confidence? And I said, on the back of a horse. I grew up in a very small town in Southern California, more horses than people. And when we were eight and nine years old, my sister and I would be gone on our horses all day long. And our parents did not worry. They had confidence that if something went wrong, we'd figure it out, get bucked off, figure it out, bridle brakes, figure it out. So see, I grew up confident that no matter what went wrong, I could figure it out. So I'll always be grateful for them for helping us see the world as an adventurous place instead of a dangerous place. And if there was a time I lost confidence, it was um, I had the privilege of working with Rod Labor in the tennis industry down on Hilton Head Island. And then I was recruited up to run Regency Racquet Club, which was the first country club for racquet sports. I had a chance to play tennis at the White House, etc. Well, two years into this, the general manager left and they asked me if I would like the job. Valerie, I was like 27 years old, 28 years old, and I was very flattered by it. And I knew that I was very good at creating kind of a Camelot community where everyone wanted to be there and felt connected. However, I went home that night and said, can I have a day to think about it? And I thought, what do I know about workman's comp? What do I know about legalities and regulations and liability and so forth? And I went back the next day and I turned down that opportunity. I, I did not have confidence that I could do the job. Mm. And so they brought in someone else who promptly ruined the club. In the next three months, this individual was not very well liked and a lot of members left and I left too. And you know what I realized? I would not have been perfect. I would have been better than him. <laughs> and when I speak for women's groups, I ask about how many times we take ourselves out of the game and we think it's the right thing to do. It's just in retrospect, I would have been better to have the confidence to take the position and to be honest and to say, finance is not my area of strength. We're going to need someone very strong there to make sure that we're handling that correctly so they can teach me and bring me up to speed is to have the confidence to say yes and then to learn as we go and to be honest about areas that are not our strength to make sure that they're covered by someone else. <sighs> That's a great story. And that goes back to yes and <laughs> being be honest. You know, Sam, we've all had those struggles once in a while. In fact, there was a survey done 
some time ago. I don't remember the exact um, statistic on it, but one thing I do remember, it was for women, and it was for women in their senior positions, so CEOs, heads of companies, and so forth. And that was the question, has there ever been a time when you lacked self-confidence? And to the woman, and I wonder if men wouldn't say the same thing, absolutely Yes, of course. And here's why and here's when. We all have those stories and that's how we learn, right? Exactly. Exactly. You know, you there's something. Can I tell a related story about that, Valerie? Please. It's because we're talking about leadership and leadership for all genders uh, and for uh, a particular women's conference that I was speaking at. In the Q&A, a woman put her hand up and she said, why are women so catty to each other? And I'd heard that question so many times and I decided to Don Draper it. And Don Draper in Mad Men said, if you don't like what's being said, change the conversation. And I said to the women in the room, I said, let's Don Draper this. Let's agree never to ask this question or answer this question again, because every single time we do, we perpetuate that stereotype. So let's change the conversation. You know, let's say, you know what I found? Women are actually really supportive of each other. I wouldn't have this job if someone hadn't recommended me for it. You know what I found? Women are real champions of each other. In fact, there's some mentor organization. I And, and that is an example in leadership. If someone ever makes an accusation or brings up some belief or stereotype we don't agree with, instead of arguing with them, you know, how about change the conversation and talk about what we do want instead of what we don't. Very wise, sage advice, Sam. Which leads me to one of your other books about bullying. That's so going on, especially on the internet. Oh my goodness. You shared with me a story about someone that you really impacted with that book. Would you please share that story? Thank you, Valerie. It's, uh, you know, sometimes we're asked what our favorite book is. It's kind of like asking what our favorite child is. I really don't have favorite books. It's just for each book, there is a story. And if that is only the one thing that had happened as a result of the book, it would made all worth it. And I think you're talking about the bully book and the time that I was at a, a book signing and uh, a couple came in with their 13-year-old daughter right before the book signing. And they handed me the bully book and it was dog-eared and pages turned over and underlined and starred and yellowed and so forth. And they said the book had changed her life and that um, she had grown up with a group of friends and they had done everything together. They were in soccer together and they hung out at school together. And one day she went to sit down uh, next to them in the cafeteria at lunch and they shunned her. They closed ranks and they would not even look at her and they would not talk to her. And at first she thought it was a joke, hey, and, and they would they never again talk with her or would even explain what she had done. And this young woman spiraled into a depression. She started getting really bad stomach aches. She didn't want to go to school. And her parents found the bully book and they read it together. And it helped her see that instead of giving power to people who are for whatever reason out to destroy us, as it says in the concentration book, Jose Ortega y Gasset said, tell me to what you pay attention and I will tell you who you are. 
that if we have the misfortune to work for bully, live with a bully, be uh, bullied by someone, is that they often loom large in our life. We can't stop thinking about what they said. We lay in bed at night rehashing what happened is to shrink them in our mind. Literally start seeing them as a half inch tall and then to move our attention to who and what is right in our world, who who treats us with respect, who appreciates us, what we do to make a difference in the world, what we do that we love, what lights us up is to shrink the bully in our life and enlarge who and what is right in our life. So I will always be glad I wrote that book and I and I hope people are finding it particularly timely and useful in these days where there are a lot of people who are exhibiting bully behavior. There are way too many, Sam. That's a beautiful story. As an author, I can appreciate having someone knowing and by having someone tell you what an impact it has. You mentioned a word I think is so fun to say, ikigai. <laughs> yes, ikigai is a Japanese concept, and it means reason to wake up in the morning. And uh, what is our purpose? What is our mission? And we're, you know, we are, we've got a couple more months left of 2020, and then we're going into 2021. And with some of my clients and some of my audiences, podcast audiences, we're talking about what is your reason to get up in the morning? What gives your days meaning and momentum? And I actually have a process that can help us clarify that. That can help us put a date on the calendar where we're going to launch that. We're going to recreate that. Where they're going to join that. Because there's a lot going on in our world we cannot control right now. As uh, And as Elvis said, when things go wrong, don't go with them. <laughs> And one of the ways to do that is instead of focusing on all the things we can't control that are going wrong, is to have a crystal clear ikigai mission, reason to get up in the morning, something on our calendar that we're looking forward to, that we're working towards, and that gives our days meaning and momentum instead of just being constantly distracted and overwhelmed with some of these other circumstances. Thank you for that, Sam. What I'm finding with so many leaders today is that, see if you've found the same thing, they are on Zoom meetings for seven hours a day. I asked one of the senior leaders recently, when do you expect them to do the work? And they are expected to do the work. Any thoughts about that? Absolutely. And in fact, if you would like, I'll send you an article that you're welcome to send out to listeners. Uh, just it's get to, it's called get to the point. And, uh, Paula Poundstone said, you know what? We need a 12 step group for nonstop talkers. We're going to call it on and on and on. <laughs> So I believe in ground rules for Zoom meetings. I believe in starting on time. How many times have we been on a Zoom meeting? We're there on time and the host says, well, we're going to we're going to wait for the stragglers. And you're thinking, why are we penalizing the people who are on time and rewarding the people who are late? So we start on time. I believe uh, that we have ground rules like each person only speaks for two minutes at a time. Uh, that you only speak once until it's clear that anyone else who has uh, something to say has a chance. That prevents people from monologuing and dominating the conversation. It prevents people from getting into a back and forth while everyone else sits on their hands. 
I believe in a policy of find solutions, not fault. So there's no like, well, you were the one who dropped the ball. Don't blame me. You were supposed to. It's like we interrupt arguments. They serve no good purpose. And we move to what we're going to do about it, how we're going to prevent it, how we're going to handle it more effectively. So the answer is, I absolutely believe that Zoom meetings can be a good use of time. If there are rules, we wouldn't go out on the on the road if there weren't rules of the road, crosswalks and lines and traffic signs. And yet in most meetings, there are no rules. Anything goes and everyone suffers. We can change that. Oh, Sam, please do send that article. And listeners, yes, just go to Valerie at ValerieAndCompany.com. Let me know in the subject line, send Sam's article. And I will do that. I can't wait to see that. Sam, thank you for that kind offer. And how can we all get in touch with you when we need some of your wonderful services? They can uh, go to my LinkedIn profile. I often post a lot of articles on LinkedIn, how to get to the point, how to create your Ikigai for 2021. They can go to my website and there are two. One is tongfu.com. So if you're thinking, yeah, I really want to know how to deal with difficult people without becoming one myself, go to T-O-N-G-U-E-F and then you, tongfu.com. Or if you think, yeah, I want to know how to write a book. I want to know how to give a TEDx talk. I want to know how to create a one-of-a-kind business. Go to intrigueagency.com. My TEDx talk is there, and uh, there's a pop class coming up on how to be one of a kind. So IntrigueAgency.com, TungFu.com, or my LinkedIn profile. I would love to hear from you. Sam, I knew this would be such fun, and thank you for being on our show today. So listeners, do that. I've done that. I've watched her demo, well, it's not a demo video, her TED talk, and, and read lots of her articles you won't be able to not click on it. They're so powerful. Thank you, Sam, so much. And have a blessed rest of the year. Thank you. I so enjoyed reconnecting with you, Valerie. And thank you for the good work you do. You really create a rising tide, raising all involved platform with your podcast. So it's a joy being, being on it and talking with you. Thank you. And I appreciate it so much. And so as we close it out, I just will say that I, like Sam, love so much the blessing that it is to do the work that I do. And that relates to leaders making a mark and making it count. So if you're out there and you're interested in talking with me about what executive coaching can look like in terms of raising your presence and your brand, again, the website is Valerie at ValerieAndCompany.com. Until next time, don't miss any of these podcasts. We have further great guests coming. Hit the subscribe button. Bye for now. Thanks for listening. To receive Valerie's voice, free monthly leadership tips, and to learn more about her leadership programs and coaching, visit her website, ValerieAndCompany.com. Next week, we'll be here again to inspire, engage, and equip you with teachable points of view from successful leaders who have been doing it right. Until then, lead authentically.